This is the Education Gadfly Show. Well, I went to give him a big hug today. Oh. And I think I killed him. Santa's dad. <laughs> I was so... What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, welcome my co-host, the Selena Gomez of Education Reform, Alyssa Schwenk. Hey, Mike. How's it going? It's good. Selena Gomez, who is... She's a pop star. A don't pop worry. Star. Don't worry about it. Just roll with it. And <laughs> Justin Bieber's girlfriend again. Yes, and again, I'm worried about her, but... <laughs> All right, we will talk about that. But first, (laughs) let's welcome our special guest for this week, the co-founder of the National Charter Collaborative, Kim Smith. Kim, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate uh, being here and uh, having the opportunity to talk to you today. Yeah, we're excited excited to to hear about what you are up to. You know, just for folks out there that might be confused, there are two Kim Smiths in the charter school world. Uh, This is not the Kim Smith, who is the uh, founder of the New Schools Venture Fund. Uh, This is the Kim Smith, that is one of the co-founders of the National Charter Collaborative. So again, welcome. Uh, just quickly on the Justin Bieber thing here. Uh, as uh, look, I'm getting to know Justin. Uh, what can I say? Nico likes Justin Bieber. Um, mm-hmm. He seems like he's a little bit past his jerky jerk phase. Is that true? I just, you know, from the perspective of someone who is a fan of Selena Gomez, yeah. uh, I just, I don't know if getting back together with him was in her best interest, okay. but you know, she's a young woman of the world. Like if that's what she wants, that's what mm-hmm. she wants. Okay. But well, he does. And he, yes, he is on literally every single song these days. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, so there you have it. I'm, uh, with, I'm with you. And the, the, the hair. The oh hair God, would be a problem hair. for me. Yeah, the hair. Uh, yeah. What's his hair? What's his hair like? It's like bleached blonde oh. and he does not. Yeah. The hair. Anyway, <laughs> as you tell me, this is not the pop culture uh, podcast. That's right. It's the Ed Reform Podcast. So let's do Ed Reform Update. So Kim, tell us a little bit about the Charter School Collaborative. What are you guys trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. So we are uh, trying to really solve for the challenges that single site leaders of color face. So Mm -hmm. black, Latino, Asian uh, leaders that are really trying to create really great, uh, successful schools. Yeah. Um, And single site. Okay, so these are charter schools that are not a part of a network. That's correct. Right. So it uh, it could be a single building, yeah. a single charter where there's mm-hmm. kind of maybe multiple buildings, but okay. only pre-K-12 yeah. as the focus. Okay. They are all over the United States mm-hmm. and no one really knows about them. Yeah. And so we have spent a couple of years just trying to find them, okay. literally. So we have a, a database of over 400 leaders across the country mm-hmm. who are single site leaders of color in all sorts of states and all sorts of places, rural mm-hmm. and urban, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, really trying to figure out how to support their work. Yeah. I'm actually surprised it's not a higher number. I mean, if, if we're looking at single site charter schools, uh, these are still the majority, right? That's Would right. You say of, of this nation's 7,000 So the like, quote unquote, schools? mom and pop mom charters. And pop, right. I mean, the That's networks right. get a lot of attention, the Ips and Achievement First and all the rest, uh, but they still are the minority, right? That most of these are still schools that teachers or parents, community groups founded, uh, and they've remained just single sites. But what you're saying is that out of maybe what, three or 4,000 schools, you've only found maybe 400 so far that are led by leaders of color. That's right. And we're still looking mm-hmm. uh, because literally this has been a purely grassroots effort mm-hmm. uh, where we've had to go out to websites. We've had to, we've had events where folks have shown up. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't been that easy mm-hmm. to find these leaders. And, and so we are, we're up to 400 so far, but we imagine there's probably close to 1,000 leaders yeah. of color across the country. Yeah, so uh, close to 1,000. Okay, so tell us more. What, what are the particular 
particular challenges that these leaders or these charter schools face? Yeah. Well, I think that you know, single site charters in general face general issues around funding, around mm-hmm. access, around finding good teachers. Mm-hmm. So we know the story of single site charters. The challenge when you're a leader of color mm-hmm. is just, frankly, is around the network that you have and the access you have, right? So these are folks that are just out there without the access to resources mm-hmm. that other leaders might have. Uh, either through their colleges or university alma maters mm-hmm. or through networks that folks might have that yeah. leaders of color don't have access to. Mm-hmm. So our goal is to try to really open up that channel. Yeah. What do you see as the driving force for these leaders to start school? Is it more, you know, they were parents and they got involved when their student wasn't being well served by a school? Was it they saw they were educators who wanted a different model? Like, why? Are, how are these schools cropping up? Yep, you hit it on the head. So there's two okay. reasons, right? Very good. Uh, okay. Uh, number one is that they're living in a community that's not being served well uh, by uh, the schools. And mm-hmm. so, uh, I, in fact, I was a board chair of the Arts and Technology Academy here in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. before we had to close it a few years ago. But that school was started by parents mm-hmm. and was led by African-American leaders over the course of its mm-hmm. uh, 15-year history. Uh, so they are either coming from the community mm-hmm. or they are educators that have come out of traditional public schools that are looking for how they can apply their own learning and teachings to launching a school in the community. But probably about 80% of them are community-based schools, if you will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's your take then on on the idea of a network? I mean, if some of these schools are successful, why not encourage them to replicate and to grow and to serve more kids? So, you know, there's the perspective of these leaders mostly is that they are focused on their school to serve their community. Yeah. And there's a lot of value in that. Mm-hmm. So my partner, Trish Tzico, and I believe that we want to retain the value of leaders being able, if they want to have one school serving yeah. one community, yeah. they should be able to do that and do mm-hmm. that successfully. Yeah. That doesn't negate uh, bringing the power of a network to these leaders. Mm-hmm. So we believe in, mm-hmm. in bringing them together that we can create a network effect, if you will, yeah. by having them work together mm-hmm. collaboratively to solve problems that they're facing. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, it keeps, mm-hmm. makes me think of the breakthrough charter schools in Cleveland, you know, which were all these single site schools with very different educational models, but mm-hmm. high quality, and they banded together uh, in part to try to get some of the benefits that come from that scale. That's right. Uh, but without, mm-hmm. but you know, but while still trying to maintain the distinct character of each school and the community mm-hmm. leadership of each school. That's so, right. That's so right. there might be some other ways yeah. to try to get the best of both worlds. Here. Yeah. I mean, I think that kind of thing that you just kind of referred to, like this operational scalability, like the things that are very, very hard when you're just one school or you don't have a lot of background knowledge. Like I taught at a single site charter school and I think there are some problems that like when you have a network or you have this huge school, like it's easy to solve those problems because you've either seen it before and it's actually not that big of a problem or you know how to solve it um, or you just have kind of the professional experience. And I think Mm -hmm. finding resources for schools to mount those operational challenges is really, really key and something that's so far missing. Mm -hmm. That's right. And we're trying to figure out other ways through, can we create talent pipelines for Mm -hmm. networks of these schools? Can Mm -hmm. we create funding pipelines if Mm -hmm. we were to bring together 20, 30, 40 across the country as part of a collaborative mm-hmm. initiative. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of money going into school innovation and redesign right now. Yep. That money's not coming to mm-hmm. black and brown leaders. So right. could we create a coalition around school innovation as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I got to put you on the spot here, yeah, yeah. Kim. Uh, the, <laughs> you know, one, one of the big news stories this week, Associated Press has done a big uh, data dive on segregation in charter schools. I feel like this 
story gets done about Every once a year. A couple of years, yeah. Uh, many of us annual. not happy. Uh, you know, look, there, there, some scholars have done this in a sophisticated yeah. way, which is to try to, as you know, it's hard, but to try to match, isolate the effect. Yeah, you know, look at the at the demographics of charter schools compared to their nearby public schools to get a fair apples to apples comparison. The AP did not uh, do that, but but still, even when you do it, it does tend to show that that charter schools are somewhat more racially isolated than traditional public schools, at least in lots of places. Uh, have you talked about this with, with the leaders? I mean, how, I, I'm just kind of curious if a lot of these schools, are they mostly serving African-American or Latino kids? Are they themselves quite racially isolated? And, you know, what, what do you say to critics who say, well, you're just supporting segregated schools? How, how do you, how do you and, and your members think about this terribly difficult issue. Yeah, it is a tough one because, you know, first of all, we look at underserved kids across the board. Yeah. Uh, Most of these leaders are serving predominantly Mm -hmm. black and brown children. Yeah. primarily because these children are not receiving the supports that they should be receiving. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's, it's what was challenging to me about the article is two things. One is this notion of purposeful segregation. Mm-hmm. Like there's some someone in the back room really trying to design segregation mm-hmm. into the charter sector, which to me is is ridiculous. Right. These are uh, schools parents chose. That's right. Voluntarily. Yeah. Right. This is, yeah. we are responding to a need. Yeah. And the other was the notion that if you have... Uh, you know, I think there was some some allusion in the article that you have to have segregated schools to have qual. I mean, integrated mm-hmm. schools to have quality mm-hmm. schools. Right. That, that desegregation is the only thing that works. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And right. I have seen successful Afrocentric school models. Yeah. Right. There are all sorts of school models that are successful because there's something in the culture mm-hmm. that may be part of the school model in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Right. So you don't want to have to lose that um, for the purposes of some kind of falsehood around. Mm-hmm integration but i you know i we're about black and brown kids underserved quality education mm-hmm. just like everyone else in the sector is focused on yeah um and so I, the, the challenge the other challenge we have is that we do think the resourcing around black and brown leaders to service these kids mm-hmm. like that's something that needs to be looked at in the sector because we do yeah. see a lot of the money flows mm-hmm. going towards the white-led cmos or the white-led schools mm-hmm. and that's something that you know for us that is an important issue that we yeah. feel needs to be addressed. All mm-hmm. right. Well, thank you, Kim. Oh. A lot to think about. Uh, and it sounds like if, if there are leaders of color out there uh, working in these kinds of schools, that they sh- can find you on the web, I assume, at the what uh, National Charter Collaborative? Uh, www.chartercollab.org. All right. <laughs> there it is. And you're trying to find them, and we'd love for them to find you. Yes, right. please find us. Right, mm-hmm. Reach out. Uh, we'd love to add you to our list and get you into our network and... Uh, Invite you to some events coming up. All Very right. Cool. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Kim. Now it is time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back Thank to the you, show. Mike. Uh, how, how's your Christmas shopping going? Have not started. Why did you <laughs> ask me that? <laughs> I just barely got the tree up and the the uh, garland than and I am. everything this weekend, and it was mm-hmm. stressful. And I kept reminding myself, "Do not get stressed over Christmas. Uh, this is not the way you do it." Right, but it's, it's his the season. You know, I I made a fo- had a little faux pas, a little problem today at the Fordham oh, office. I uh, <laughs> we have this inflatable Santa that we've had here for I don't know many years, uh, many a longer. Years. 
nice five years, years, ten years, maybe ten. Well, I went to give him a big hug today. Oh, and I think I killed him. Santa said, <laughs> I was so upset by that too. I love that big inflatable Santa. See, see, somehow he means Christmas when you see him around the house. I don't know. See, I had a workstation without a door for two years, twenty feet from him, and to me, he just means a very loud humming. He noise. was he was a little loud. <laughs> gosh, he was so jolly. Well, so. you know, the, he's jolly no longer. What can I say? <laughs> we uh, need to the, the, pinch pennies around here and get a new one. As the Buddha would say, all things are impermanent. Uh, 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 the so, Yoda, because now we have a Christmas Yoda uh, up. You have the Christmas Yoda. Uh, yeah, he's not Santa. Uh, all right. Anyway. So, all right. What you, what what no gifts more. are you bringing to researchers? Uh, hey, for a new Raj Chetty bomb, as you call it, Ooh, Chetty yes. bomb. Every time Chetty it comes bomb. a new study, oh, it's a big one. Um, colleagues and colleagues, it's like seven or other people in the study, <laughs> but like everybody just. It's a chatty bomb. Chatty bomb. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they examine the various factors that determine who becomes an inventor in America. So it's a portrait of the individuals. Like he calls it a portrait. I'm um, looking at them from birth to adulthood. Um, they examine individual data on 1.2 million inventors. That's a lot. Wow. <laughs> From patent records that are then linked to tax records, where these tax records just are the gift uh, that keeps yeah. on giving, right? Uh, they focus on 1.7 million patents that were granted between 1996 and 2014 to U.S. residents and define an individual as an inventor if he or she is listed as an inventor on a patent application. Okay. Okay. Uh, they're looking at about between 1996, I already said that, and 2012. Anyway. And then they, for a subset, they look at New York City school district data um, for about 2.5 million children. Um, and you'll find out why in a minute, but they have this other New York City data. Okay. So just hmm. tons of data. Rolling with that. Uh, key descriptive findings. Number one, the characteristics at birth, uh, socioeconomic status, race, and gender are highly predictive of whether individuals become inventors. Mm-hmm. Children born in the top 1% of the income distribution are 10 times as likely to become inventors as those born to families with below median income. Whites are more than three times as likely to become inventors as blacks. 82% of 40-year-old inventors today are men. That the gender gap is shrinking gradually over time. Okay? okay? Then that's all the descriptive stuff. Then they say, okay, let's try to figure out the root of these patterns. And then they turn to differences in ability. Maybe that's something we should look at, right? They find that math scores in grade three are highly predictive of patent rates, but account for less than one-third of the gap in innovation between children from high and low-income families. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yet. Yet. The gap in innovation explained by test scores grows in the later years, and by eighth grade, half of the gap in innovation by income can be explained by differences in test scores. Perhaps they say because of differences in, what do you think? School. School. And childhood environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so next, so that's that part. I mean, the like just the study just keeps going, right? So uh, let me just pause just okay. for a second. Does this mean, in effect, can we infer that, that they're, they're showing that there's a fair number of low-income, high-achieving third graders who are not as high-achieving by the eighth grade? Uh, yes, yeah. that is right. Okay. Dropping off. Yeah. yeah. They're dropping off because of these yep. other things that yep. happen as you get older. Uh, so next they look at environment and they show that exposure to innovation during childhood via one's family or neighborhood has a significant effect on a child's likelihood to become an inventor. For example, mm-hmm. uh, 2.0 out of a thousand kids whose parents were not inventors became inventors by 2014, while 18 per a thousand children of inventors became mm. inventors themselves. Okay. So if you got a dad or a mom who's an inventor, you're more likely to become an inventor more, uh, and more likely you're to become a, an inventor in the same field. Mm-hmm. They actually found they were patenting 
in the very in the same field as their parents. Kind of makes sense. In addition, they find that neighborhood effects exist. In a nutshell, the industries in a particular place impact the types of patents granted. So, if you're in Silicon Valley, you're more likely to patent in computers. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, I mean, it's still going, right? I'm sorry. Am I on four minutes yet? <laughs> then they look at innovation rates by colleges that have the highest percentage of inventors okay. that went there, okay, graduated there. They conclude that while the rates are all over the place, students from high and low income families patent at similar rates in these colleges. Then they say, Once well, that suggests yeah. that maybe environment and this childhood stuff I talked about before are actually driving the gaps. Mm-hmm. That's what they say. Okay. Finally, then they talk, 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 talk more, one more, but one of the things they say is, okay, what can we do about this? And they conclude that reducing tax rates is not a very viable option. This is what the New York Times picked up, which was a little odd. Okay. Um, but they say the star inventors, these are the guys that are making the patents that are most useful to the field, mm-hmm. are making about a million per year. So they're already well compensated. So um, cutting taxes isn't that much of a lure for them since, quote, they're likely to be happy to work in their field even if they earn 950000 versus a million, hmm. which I'm like, hmm. All right. But how did we jump from like gaps in education to tax brackets? Well, these are supposed to be like policy implications. Okay. Mm. okay. And they say, but tax breaks could affect economic growth through other channels. Anyway, that part just was... I don't know. Anyway, that's what got picked up. But anyway, the mm. the recommendation I think makes a lot of sense was that we should harness the power of these underutilized talent in these groups mm-hmm. via mentorships, internships, social networks, and trying to get these kids exposed to these opportunities at a younger age. Mm-hmm. And better Ooh. schools, too. Right? Better schools. Like, that also better schools. I mean, look, we, I, I, I will just say we have a study in the works mm-hmm. uh, that is trying to look at some of these same trends to try to say, you know, between, say, third grade and eighth mm-hmm. grade or third grade in high school or even beyond, you know, are we losing more low-income high achievers than we are losing high-income high achievers, mm-hmm. losing by which we mean, you know, they sort of regress back to the mean right. over lose time. Altitude. They lose altitude. Uh, and is that related to perhaps things like not getting access to gifted programs uh, mm-hmm. in the same way that higher achieving kids do? So, I mean, this right. is, uh, I mean, they looked at everything else. Really, they couldn't look at whether these kids got access to gifted uh, intelligence. Yeah, right. Programs. Does that not in a tax record? I don't think so. And it's only in New York City that they were able to look at the educational piece. education piece. piece. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's that's interesting, but also a, a little bit of a narrow slice. It is. It is. Yeah. But you know, hey, I love the topic. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like no, this is a pretty cool topic. Looking at patents, you yeah. know, and it ties into gifted, and um, you know, I don't know. I just think, wow, who's ever sitting around thinking, what are these other questions we can ask about tax records? Like yeah. that's a fun and combined fun activity. Yeah. Basically, what if you have somebody's social security number and you have the tax <laughs> records? What <laughs> question can't you answer? My God. And why are we not worried about privacy here? Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's Raj, it's just Raj. You can right. trust him. It's yeah. all good. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Amber. It's you're a good welcome. one. A a wonderful Christmas gift. Oh, that's right. For the research crowd. All right. I, hey, you're just reminding me. I think soon I get to do my top five. I was going to oh. say, do we get right? the Amber's yeah. Roundup? Gotta get that going. You got to add it to your list on top of all the Christmas <laughs> gifts you know, need to right? buy. And Woo. we have to find a new Santa. <sighs> We're not. <laughs> you know where I fall on this one. We're Gosh, I sound like a Grinch. All right. Till next time. I'm Alyssa Schwing. And I'm Mike Trillet, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.